Hi, Amy here. Are you feeling stuck or overwhelmed by things that pop up in your daily life? And perhaps these are because of past traumas or toxic stress. Have you tried traditional therapy and found that it wasn't enough? I know that was the case for me. That's why we developed the Whole Health Lab. Mini Trauma has put together a program that combines the latest research with proven methods to help you recover from trauma and move forward from these daily stressors and triggers. We use somatic therapy, EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy, and internal family systems therapy. We use nervous system regulation and many other tools so that we can combine the best methods that are identified in the research to help you recover without being completely overwhelmed. So you can work on trauma on your own pace, your own time, and still with the mentorship and support of a highly trained certified staff. That's us. No more waiting for appointments or sitting in traffic, driving to see a therapist. With our online program, The Whole Health Lab, you can access it from anywhere, anytime, even on an app. Visit mendingtrauma.com backslash whole health lab and learn more. Get your questions answered. We've got a frequently asked questions section and sign up so that you can have this life-changing program in your world today. Don't let your past hold you back any longer. Take control of your future and we can't wait to see you in the whole health lab. Welcome to the Mending Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Hoyt, and along with my sister, Lena Hoyt, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we want to help you recover from trauma, whether it's childhood trauma, complex trauma, PTSD, or any other trauma sustained from abuse or narcissistic relationships. We want to help you develop skills and ways that can help you to recover from the symptoms and the effects of trauma. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. This week, we're going to talk about hypercriticism and how it is related to our past trauma. So first, let's talk about what hypercriticism is and what that might look like in someone. Lena, can you start us off? Sure. Hypercriticism is actually linked to hypervigilance, which is a condition that we, that our nervous system um, takes on or adopts in order to keep us safe in the future. And the hypervigilance makes us hypercritical as well, or can, because things have to go a certain way in order for our nervous system to feel safe. So the, the hypercriticism is about trying to keep us safe by having us never make a misstep or a mistake. Nobody can abandon us or reject us. Nobody will harm us or hit us because we said the wrong thing. And the hypercriticism is often worse to self than it is externally if, if you're a trauma survivor. And that's very common. I was I was just going to ask you, is it more internal or is it external? And you've answered the question. It t- tends to be more focused on our own selves. So we're very critical mm-hmm. of ourselves. I find right. a relationship between how critical I am of myself that is parallel to how critical I am of other people. What do you think? Is that common? Yeah, that is also common. When we when we've survived our childhood by by using like the fawn or the um, pleasing response, 
then a lot of times the criticism will be internal towards ourself. Um, and we can give a lot of other people grace, but we can't tolerate even the smallest misstep in ourselves. And then there are other people who adapted and survived by using the fight response. And a lot of times with the fight response, that can um, show up with a lot of external criticism of other people and situations. And that also, though, is designed, our brain and our nervous system are trying to keep us from danger by making sure nothing um, goes wrong, so nothing bad will happen. Okay, so what I'm hearing is it's not necessarily correlated with self-criticism equals criticism of others, but it's it's actually your trauma response that kind of dictates where that criticism is directed. Correct. Yeah, that's a, that was a good reframe. Yeah. Okay. So hypercriticism, again, can be directed to the self or others. It's linked to hypervigilance um, to keep us safe. Let's talk about how it's linked to perfectionism. Because I see there are so many people that we work with, and I know that you've worked with in your private practice, uh, that struggle with perfectionism. And how is that linked? Perfectionism is an attempt to control. Um, Some people may differ with me, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case about every single incident of um, perfectionism, but it's an attempt to be either good enough or smart enough or pretty enough, or it's an attempt to be um, worthy and lovable, but it's very subconscious. If you meet a perfectionist, perfectionist and say to them, you really want to be lovable and worthy, they'll be like, what are you talking about? I just want to be CEO. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So when you're, when you see perfectionism, it, it's also a trauma response. And the attempt, again, is to make sure that there's no reason for anybody to not love you, not consider your needs, not like you, not want you. Okay. So one of the things you talked about is how it's subconscious. And I think, you know, we work with a lot of people that realize they're perfectionists, but they may not understand that the ultimate drive is to be loved and accepted. The other thing um, that you mentioned that I want to kind of dive a little deeper on is that they might jokingly say, I just want to be CEO, or maybe they're serious. Right. So, or maybe they're serious, right? So there's a tie between hypercriticism, perfectionism, and this need to overachieve. And we've talked about this in other episodes, but one of the things that comes to mind is early in my journey, this um, inherent sense that if I could accomplish the next big goal I had, that somehow I would feel better, I would feel more whole, more worthy. Of course, I didn't realize that's what I was chasing. I was just chasing accomplishment after accomplishment and in a very rapid way. So I have to get my PhD by X age. I have to have this job by X, you know, years after graduating. And so I guess I just want to spend some time talking about how this chasing of goals is linked to um, a type of numbing Mm. where we can focus so wholeheartedly on our goals 
and it actually acts as a, a numbing mechanism from our trauma responses. Right. Yeah, that's a really that's a really insightful point. One of the things that you and I have because of our Hoyt background is this workaholism. And one of the things that workaholism can lead to is it can lead to poor emotional connections and childhood home because the parent is pursuing their own um, subconsciously pursuing their own sense of good enough, worth, love, worthy, value, etc. And when we have the um, modeling of workaholism or any addiction, actually, and then we have our own trauma, then it's almost like we become double cursed or blessed. I mean, you want a CEO to be that on top of things, but it usually leads to an imbalance in connection with important others. And so we're not attacking perfectionism. We're talking about how certain symptoms show up as a result of trauma and how they outlive their usefulness in terms of keeping us safe. And as they outlive their usefulness, we don't have a way of falling back into a different way of engaging with our world and our loved ones. The other thing I see a lot of is a lot of criticism of children when the parent has perfectionism or a lot of trauma. And that is super destructive to relationships. And no parent wants to think, you know, I'm going to hound my kids so that they never come home for Christmas after they turn 18. Like nobody's doing that on purpose. Yeah. But, but it is a symptom. For sure. And, you know, as someone with a strong inner critic, again, that's where I see some of the parallel where my own strong inner critic accidentally can be pushed out onto my loved ones, you know, whether it's my spouse or my children or my siblings. Um, And so that's, that's exactly what is the opposite of connection. And we know that with authentic and loving connections, we're able to start repairing some of the damage that was done from trauma because at its core trauma is a severe disconnection from others and we know that especially in childhood it's not the trauma that leads to cptsd it's actually the lack of a adult who is able to help you repair or to hold that trauma with you afterwards or who caused the trauma right Right. Yes. No, that's very true. I can remember, I don't know if you remember this, but it was years ago and you were worried about something with maybe with Jackson. I don't remember. And I said to, to you, um, believe it or not, it's, it's not always what, what happens that causes the most trauma. It's the lack of a regulated adult who can hold that dysregulation of the child and help co-regulate the child. I didn't use co-regulate because I didn't know that word yet, but it's really so much of the trauma is about um, not having somebody who can see you mm-hmm. and acknowledge the difficulty. Mm-hmm. For sure. Cause I know um, if I had had someone to talk to about my abuse when I was young that would not have led to daily drinking in my teenage years. Right. Um, You know, 
or a suicide attempt or all of the other destructive mm-hmm. things that happened. And um, in fact, it's been really satisfying to watch your work over the last 30 years and see that um, when you are working with people who have been sexually abused and their parent becomes aware of it and gets them help right away, how great they do. Yes. It's really fascinating, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. Even parents who try to help, it's it oftentimes also includes making sure that the victim keeps the secret and that kind of thing. But some of the people that I've worked with, the, the sexual abuse wasn't their biggest trauma. It was their parent not believing them mm-hmm. or their parents saying that they must have done something to bring it on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to hypercriticism and all of that, what that entails with the perfectionism and then the chasing goals and, you know, really never, ever being able to stop and think I'm enough. I don't have to chase anymore. I don't have to do everything perfect to be worthy and lovable. That's really so deeply tied to trauma and the lack of um, really safe connection we had after the trauma. Correct. Yeah. And even I, I mean, one of the things I used to um, joke about after my stroke, I had a stroke that was in a very small part of my brain and it kind of flattened me and I couldn't do very much. And so I used to be like, I used to teach a college course and run a nonprofit with 20 employees and have thriving private practice. And everyone was like, why do you, why do you do so much? Like, why can't you relax? Well, after I had the stroke and my body was really impacted, I couldn't do as much, but you know, you and I had a conversation on Monday and I realized I was back in that place where I was like, I need to do more. Oh, I need to help more. Talk to, talk to me about that. I don't remember the conversation. That's okay. So we were talking about, um, I was talking about how I'm discouraged because I don't have a trajectory of this consistently getting a little bit better. I have good days and bad days. And um, one of the things I was talking to you about is how I I wanted to be able to help more. And you were really puzzled. <laughs> oh, um, yes. about, about seven months ago, I moved in with Amy and her husband and kids because I I couldn't take care of myself very well on my own. And, and I said to Amy that I was really upset. I couldn't help more. And Amy looked at me and she was like, what are you talking about? Have I, have I ever told you you need to do more? And I said, no, not at all. That's not coming from you. So I've been mulling this over since Monday and thinking about the state of my nervous system that I started to become more and more worried about contributing or participating in some way. Mm. And I'm still trying to tease it out, but um, I did realize by Monday night that it was some of this old stuff popping up. Right. That I need to be a high contributor or a hard worker in order to have worth. And so to live with my family who loves me and who wants to take care of me, I need to still prove my worth. Exactly. Yeah. And and I I don't know if maybe that's part of that's because I am getting well enough to, to even think about those things. Cause when I first moved in here, I wasn't well enough to do, I couldn't even think straight. Um, But it is an interesting conundrum and I'm mulling it over and trying to figure out 
what steps I need to take to kind of focus on somatic work to help release more of that Mm. trauma and that nervous system. I love that. um, Defendedness. Mm -hmm. I was just going to have us kind of talk about that for our listeners who are listening to this and resonating with overworking or a high inner critic or perfectionism. We, you know, we're going to sing this until we're six feet under, but it's the somatic work. It is the being present with your body so that you can actually understand what's happening with your nervous system that is going to help you, one, get out of your limbic system because you become the observer. You start to observe what's going on with your body, and we know that's going to connect you to your prefrontal cortex. But two, it's going to actually help you have some agency as to whether you want to stay in the nervous system state you're in or whether you want to shift it. Right. And I love the word agency because as we've done more polyvagal work in our program and with our clients and ourselves, one thing that I've seen is that once clients understand that their nervous system is dictating this, their subconscious perception of threat is dictating this, it's almost like they can offer themselves more grace or more empathy because they know they're not doing it to themselves. 100%. Yep. That was a game changer. There is, there is so much power in it. Um, When -hmm. you realize the power of our subconscious brain and nervous system and that um, we are often just along for the ride until we start to build awareness and building awareness is like building a muscle. You can't just go zero to a hundred in one, you know, sitting, you have to incrementally continue to build awareness until it becomes, well, really until those neural pathways are deepened and it becomes more conscious. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. It's the neural pathways because when the neural pathways are deepened because of use, then that new behavior or new awareness or new thought process becomes more automatic. Mm -hmm. So the somatic tools that I think are most helpful for nervous system work are things like um, somatic journaling, where Mm -hmm. you are just jotting down pen to paper or pencil to paper, because we know that that actually helps our brain um, process more efficiently than typing, Uh, and not really efficiently, but at a deeper level. Um, you start writing down each day what you feel in your body. I feel tension in my stomach. I feel tension in my shoulders. Um, my neck is tight. And that is just the first step. And somatic journaling is really, really powerful. And then you go into why you might be having this tension in your stomach or your neck or your back. And as you build understanding, and again, we have the nervous system reset journal that actually goes over the different states. And so if you're, I mean, for me, it was very confusing until I studied it deeply, like dorsal versus ventral versus sympathetic. But once you start to understand these states, you can identify where you are. Okay, I'm in dorsal, I'm in a little bit of a collapse, I don't want to get out of bed. I feel low, low energy. So we know that we can physically do something to shift that if we feel like it's appropriate. 
we can accept it and stay in that state because our body is asking us to rest. Or we can actually use our imagination, which I think is incredible, to shift our state. And so there's tons of options once we start to be able to identify our state and decide where we want to go from there. Right. And keep in mind, um, listeners, that we're not we're not recommending that you do deep trauma work on your no. own. That is absolutely counterindicated, contraindicated. Because um, I, one of the things I say to my clients sometimes is it's our brain that got us here. And so it's, mo- we need more than just our brain to get us out of it. Like we need outside sources, we need outside support, we need outside guidance. Um, so keep in mind that Starting small on small things that are upsetting is a great place to start, but don't go delving deep into something that your nervous system can't help you regulate. It's That's too dangerous and painful. Yes. And I think the other thing we should mention is that trauma shows up in our everyday life by our reaction to things. And so Correct. you can do trauma work every day without ever going to the the deep, deep center by just looking at how you responded to a coworker, how you responded to a neighbor or a child or a spouse or partner. And that actually is trauma work because you're dealing with your reactions and your trauma reactions. But yes, absolutely. What Lena said, deep trauma work where you're looking at your core issues needs to be done with a professional. Um, That's actually why we have our program, the whole health lab where we do internal family systems and we do EMDR and we do group work and one-on-one check-ins. It needs to be structured with someone who knows how to take you through that work and titrate you so you're not overwhelmed constantly. We don't want to blow up our lives by looking at our trauma. We want to peek at it little by little until we're able to build up some reservoir to be able to contain some of our our emotions around it really because it's it's yes. it's definitely work absolutely and having a professional a mental health professional who understands and specializes in trauma they can then become the container for you as you do your work um and and it's a it can be a really necessary step because when we're first addressing some of the more difficult or deep traumas, we absolutely cannot contain it ourselves. We don't have the ability to do it. And it has nothing to do with willpower or intelligence or a desire to get better. So do yourself a favor, be kind to yourself, look at small things, look at your reactions now, work on those and then get appropriate mental health assistance when you can. Absolutely. Well, I think that's it for this week. We're so glad you're here. Um, as always, please feel free to email us at hello at Mending Trauma with podcast episode ideas or questions. And um, we look forward to being with you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Mending Trauma podcast. Lane and I are really grateful that you spend time with us each week. We know you have a choice and that time is currency. 
We would love if you would share this episode on social media and tag us so we can reshare. If you feel so inclined, go and give us a five-star review wherever you listen to pods so that we can get the word out and help more people. We know that we are all working hard on our mental health and we wish you great success this week in implementing these new skills. We'll check in next week.